Coming up on Tech Nation, it's long COVID and another medical condition, fibromyalgia. Dr. Seth Letterman, the co-founder and CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals, tells us how the two may be related, and they are both now recruiting in advanced human clinical trials. Then neuroscientist and psychologist Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett talks about her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. She has some surprises for us, including there is no reptilian part of your brain. That is just a myth. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Dr. Rita Caldwell, the first woman to head the National Science Foundation, the recipient of the National Medal of Science, a distinguished university professor at both the University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins University, and the founder and chair of the bioinformatics company Cosmos ID. With all her many accomplishments, scientist, professor, inventor, and even entrepreneur, I asked her, you've had many signature positions in your career, but did you know when you accepted the position of director of the National Science Foundation, this would be the one that everyone would remember you by? That's a wonderful aspect of it. Everybody recognizes and respects the National Science Foundation. And so I think you, you get a kind of a, uh, an aura and um, uh, a rapport with everybody, including both sides of the aisle in Congress, which I really uh, was very impressed with. I felt very good about that. Now, when you are president of NSF, do you have to deal with Congress to get funding, or is that is it kind of given? No, you really do have to deal with Congress. You you spend a lot of time, or at least I spend a lot of time on the Hill, really explaining what we're doing, letting them know what our plans were, because it was really important for them to understand that everything was above board, straight, honest, this is what we need to do, this is why it's good for the country. And they understood. And I think they may have had their differences in their political views, but fundamentally, they do want what's best for the country. And if you're able to explain to them that what you're doing in science, engineering, technology, mathematics, is very important for the country, and they can understand it, then they're supportive. Now, during President Obama's State of the Union speech in January 2016, almost a year ago now, he announced the National Cancer Moonshot. And in the past year, over 70 companies have made commitments to support that effort. Remind us what the National Cancer Moonshot is and what the company you founded, Cosmos ID, has contributed. We're very excited about this opportunity because it is sort of the next important solitative leap to finding cures to cancer. And, and actually, I should say cancer is plural because it's really not one entity. It's a mixture of them. And understanding the genetics, the human genetics, but also in the case of the company that I have founded, the role that microorganisms play, bacteria, viruses, fungus, parasites, play in either triggering cancer or when it 
occurs, exacerbating it, making it worse. So, so it, it's an exciting time to take all of these tools of science and engineering to make that next big step, the next jump in being able to understand cancer, how to treat it. And what's very interesting is that the immunology side of it is turning out to be quite an important factor. Now, the company I founded uses nucleic acid DNA and the RNA, other types of nucleic acid, to determine exactly what's present. So we can extract the DNA, let's say from a tumor or from the tissue surrounding the tumor, extract the DNA, and then with the algorithms, with the computer algorithm that we've developed, we can, within minutes, determine exactly the bacteria down to species, strain, and substrain, the viruses, the fungus, and the parasites, everything at once, within minutes. And this is really exciting because it means we can diagnose so rapidly and be able to treat appropriately and quickly. So so we're really kind of revisiting some of the early studies in a much more refined and elegant molecular way of determining the information. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Dr. Rita Caldwell, the 11th director and first woman to lead the National Science Foundation. Today, her interests are focused on global infectious diseases, water, and health. She is currently developing an international network to address emerging infectious diseases and water issues. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, long COVID. It's new, but it may be related to the medical condition fibromyalgia. Tonix Pharmaceuticals is recruiting in human clinical trials for both. We'll talk about this with Dr. Seth Letterman, its co-founder and CEO. Then Northeastern University neuroscientist and psychologist, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. I speak with her about her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Seth Letterman. Well, Dr. Letterman, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me on. And I mean welcome back. <laughs> I've spoken with you over the years on all manner of efforts uh, from military-based PTSD to depression and sleep disorders. And I see now you have cocaine addiction and overdose treatment, a smallpox and monkeypox vaccine, a COVID vaccine, all way too much to talk about in a single interview. So today I thought we'd talk about the two clinical trials you're now recruiting for. One is a phase two trial for long COVID, and the other, further advanced, is a mid-phase three trial for fibromyalgia. And here's the punchline. They're using the same drug. Are long COVID and fibromyalgia related? We think so. 
Fibromyalgia is a relatively common pain syndrome that affects mostly women and is remarkable for four key symptoms, multi-site pain, fatigue, trouble sleeping, and brain fog. And nobody knows the cause of fibromyalgia, but many people suspect that it is a post-viral illness, meaning an illness that people get after they've recovered from a viral infection. So along comes COVID, and suddenly people all over the world are affected with the same virus. And afterwards, many of them are getting long COVID. And we think that long COVID is very similar to fibromyalgia in the fact that m many people have multi-site pain, fatigue, sleep problems, and brain fog. But it's also similar because it is about two-thirds women more than men. And we think that they're very similar, if not the same. The big difference being that with long COVID, we know what the viral infection was. In fibromyalgia, we're all often just guessing that there might have been a viral infection. At some point, that we know it's COVID might end up influencing everything. Exactly. It probably will mean that the long COVID patients are more of a homogeneous population, meaning that they are getting this condition related to the same virus. But in fibromyalgia, it may be more heterogeneous or, you know, more little differences in between people with fibromyalgia, because some people may have gotten it, uh, for example, after an Epstein-Barr virus infection. Other people might have gotten it after a flu infection or something like that. So we won't know as much about fibromyalgia, but I think that for long COVID, we'll have a, a clearer idea because it's easier to study things that are homogeneous. Now, fibromyalgia is a well-known disease. It's recognized by the FDA. Long COVID is new. Has FDA had the time to recognize it as a disease? Well, you're correct that fibromyalgia is recognized by the FDA. There are three drugs that were approved. Uh, two of them became significant blockbusters. One was Eli Lilly's Cymbalta, and another was Pfizer's Lyrica. So these are, you know, became very significant products. And also the recognition by those companies and the promotion and the outreach to doctors and the rest of it was probably very positive because it allowed many people to recognize that what was ailing them had a name and had some therapies with some benefits. So fibromyalgia is very well recognized now. Long COVID is recognized, but not understood. And our view that long COVID is so closely related to fibromyalgia is not yet, I'd say, the majority view on this. I think that it's widely discussed among thought leaders, certainly, you know, in our conversations with the FDA, uh, you know, no one is discounting the view, but I don't think it's widely accepted yet. Before long COVID appeared, a very famous academic rheumatologist, University of Michigan, predicted 
that this viral epidemic would be followed by an epidemic of essentially fibromyalgia. So I think that there's a lot understood about it, but still not uniform agreement. The other thing is that we're talking, when I say that fibromyalgia and long COVID are the same, I'm really referring to about two thirds of long COVID. About one third of long COVID is a grab bag of things like scarred lungs, or um, a heart attack or stroke that may have happened during an acute COVID infection. But the two-thirds that I'm referring to are people that present with multi-site pain, fatigue, sleep problems, and brain fog. Now, I remember reading a, a report from the FDA about long COVID, and it kept mentioning chronic fatigue syndrome. Do they believe that's related there? Yes, the re the report you're referring to was issued by HHS, Health and Human Services, the parent organization uh, under which FDA sits. And it was the National Research Action Plan on Long COVID. And it came out in late September of this year. And it was issued in response to an executive memorandum from President Biden requesting the report. So they convened a panel of experts and came up with you know, a very interesting document. And you're correct, 19 times in the report, they refer to the connection with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is uh, called CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. And no time in the report did they mention fibromyalgia. So on the one hand, we were disappointed that the National Research Action Plan didn't expressly mentioned fibromyalgia. But for experts in the field, the linkage to chronic fatigue syndrome was pretty much the same thing. Fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome overlap significantly. Uh, same patient may be called fibromyalgia by one doctor, chronic fatigue syndrome by another doctor. We were surprised that the blue chip panel decided to use chronic fatigue syndrome as the paradigm of a post-viral pain syndrome because FDA has not yet recognized chronic fatigue syndrome with any approved drugs, whereas fibromyalgia, as we discussed, is already enshrined at FDA and in our mind is really the prototypical post-viral chronic pain syndrome. But we did think it was very important that the blue chip panel from HHS recognized that long COVID is new in the context of COVID, but it's not so new in the context of the fact that millions of Americans already have post-viral chronic pain syndromes, most of whom are diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Now, you've talked about what it's like to have fibromyalgia, but what's happening internally if you have it? Well, that's a great question. And I've been interested in fibromyalgia for many years. Before entering the biotech industry, I was a professor at Columbia Medical School and, among other things, practiced rheumatology in the university clinic. And rheumatologists are the subspecialty of medicine who take care of fibromyalgia patients. So I have clinical experience with fibromyalgia going back for many years. And fibromyalgia is very frustrating for the patients because 
multi-site pain is defined by the patients as, I hurt all over. And that just means that there's pain in more than one part of their body, and often all over their body. And many of them have been frustrated by their interactions with the medical system in that not all doctors are qualified and confident to recognize fibromyalgia and treat it appropriately. So sometimes patients get treated with things they probably shouldn't get. For example, opiates are commonly used and they don't help. It can just cause trouble and the rest of it. So the life of a fibromyalgia patient is usually pretty frustrating. But now that fibromyalgia is getting more recognition, now that their drugs approved and doctors are better at diagnosing it, I think the experience overall for patients is slightly better. But what we are interested in our drug is that we seem to affect the condition broadly across these four symptoms, whereas some of the earlier drugs are more focused on one symptom or another. And our drug, TNX-102SL, is a bedtime medicine that's taken under the tongue every night, and we believe it improves sleep quality. Now, I mentioned that poor sleep was one of the four symptoms, but we think that it's a really critical symptom. If you think of fibromyalgia as the enemy, we think that the sleep problem is like the Achilles heel of fibromyalgia, that if you can get the sleep addressed, then the patients experience improvements on the other symptoms, the multi-site pain and the fatigue and the um, brain fog. Well, is this a sleeping pill? It is not a sleeping pill. And that's a great question. Sleeping pills, the term sleeping pill usually refers to classes of drugs that are also called tranquilizers or sedatives. And that, you know, that group of drugs started out, you know, in the 60s. Um, it would have been things like barbiturates. And then later came in the um, Valium class drugs. And then after the Valium class drugs, which, um, uh, you know, were often used for sleep. And then, then there were a group of drugs called non-benzos, benzodiazepine is the class of drugs that Valium is the most famous member of. And then a, a new group of drugs is called non-benzos, but they really reacted with the same uh, receptor in the brain that, that benzos react with. So all of those drugs are measured in the same way, and that is they decrease the time that someone is awake after their head hits the pillow. So that time when someone's head hits the pillow until they're asleep is called sleep latency. And all of the tranquilizers and sedatives that have been, you know, tested decrease sleep latency. So they make it, they make someone fall asleep faster. And our drug doesn't do that. Our drug is designed to improve the quality of sleep. And quality of sleep is something that you can really only measure by how someone feels the next day. Was their sleep restorative? 
Did they wake up feeling refreshed? And these are things that really haven't been addressed before um, for these other drugs like tranquilizers and, and sedatives. So, so that's why our drug improves sleep quality. But I think if you use the term sleeping pill, it brings you back to that other, those other older drugs that, um, you know, that basically knock someone out. So you appear to be asleep, but you're really knocked out. You're not doing a restorative process for your body. That's an excellent description. And, you know, the, the sleeping pills are really not meant to be taken on a long-term basis. Unfortunately, many people do take them, you know, uh, you know, for a number of nights in a row. And some people even take them, you know, chronically. But that's really not how they were intended to be used. And, um, and whereas, you know, they, they're really meant for if you were served, you know, real coffee at dinner and you're expecting decaf, or if you had too much chocolate because you just couldn't help yourself after dessert or something like that, then these kinds of uh, medicines do work. But our drug would not work in that context. Our, our drug only works if it's taken repetitively night after night over a period of time. As a matter of fact, so you really only start getting benefits about, you know, 10 days or two weeks into a course of therapy. So ours is made to kind of reset the cycle of sleep and wake and get people back into um, a, a natural progression where their sleep can be restorative. Now, do they go after a different receptor than the benzos and non-benzos? Yes. So our drug does go after a completely different um, uh, treatment approach in terms of brain receptors than the benzos. The benzos all interact with the same receptor. It's a, called the chloride conductions channel. Um, but ours actually interacts with three different receptors in the brain, all of which are known to play roles in sleep quality. So one is called a serotonin receptor, the serotonin type 2A receptor. Another is a receptor um, for histamine. And in, in that respect, our drug is kind of like an antihistamine that, you know, that other people might take for allergies. Um, and at the same time, it goes after a group of receptors called the alpha adrenergic receptors, which are you know, relate to uh, epinephrine or adrenaline, for example. So by hitting these three receptors, our single drug, we call it a multifunctional drug, the same drug specifically interacts with these three receptors, but it sets up an environment where uh, better quality of sleep can be achieved. You sort of calm down. Yeah, um, I don't even know that it would be called calm down because it's not a tr tranquilizer. It just it just sets up a, a a situation so that when you're trying to sleep, the sleep can be more restorative. But an important difference is also that you know in in the experience that people have had on our drug, they're also not knocked out. They can be woken up. They can answer the phone. They can you know, respond to things. So it's just something that sets up an environment in the brain for if the person is sleeping, then the sleep can be better quality. We believe that 
sleep with good sleep quality it can be restorative and can help these people heal. Now, our studies are only designed to test whether repeated administration over three-month period makes them better in the end. And that would be a goal for future studies to see if there is really some kind of resolution of the underlying process. But we do think that our drug can be taken for long periods of time chronically and can continue to provide a reliable benefit um, in improving sleep quality and then improving these other symptoms like the pain, fatigue, and brain fog. Now, the sleep that people with fibromyalgia have, the sleep problem that fibromyalgia people have is distinctive. So we don't know whether this would help people with other kinds of sleep disorders. We're really very narrowly focused on people with fibromyalgia or people with long COVID who have a particular type of sleep disturbance. And you know that's the type that in the phase three study that we've already completed successfully, that that's the type of sleep problem that can be addressed by our medicine and can lead to these other benefits. We actually do know some things about long COVID, not because we've studied them scientifically that we normally do, but because we have looked at medical charts, correct? Yes. Well, um, we and other people have looked at series of long COVID patients and the uh, conclusion that long COVID is related to fibromyalgia is not uniquely a tonics uh, observation. As a matter of fact, people studies in different countries around the world have have come to this in in different ways. Uh, sometimes using different terms. Uh, one study that showed two thirds of long COVID patients were similar to fibromyalgia measured something called central sensitization. And that's a brain phenomenon that people think is at the root of fibromyalgia. Um, another group, a very prolific uh, and creative investigator, uh, the St. Louis VA, has looked at numerous uh, medical records of people in the Veterans Administration system in the United States and concluded that um, you know there are many of these uh, symptoms seem to be similar to ones that people with fibromyalgia would complain of. But then I think what you're referring to is we at Tonics did a medical chart review from a very big database in which uh, looking at millions of Americans, we were able to identify about 53,000 with long COVID. And we were able to confirm that about 40% of them had multi-site pain as kind of a leading symptom for why they were uh, presenting to the doctor. And we think that that's important because that's pretty similar to fibromyalgia. Now, when you do a chart review, you don't have the opportunity to follow up and say, oh, you have multi-site pain. Do you also have fatigue? Do you also have brain fog? So, it's it's more a question about what their leading complaint was. But when 40% of them said that 
you know, they came in complaining of multi-site pain. That really does seem pretty similar to fibromyalgia. Dr. Seth Letterman is the co-founder and CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals. We'll talk more after a break. The Biotech Nation podcast individually can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, Northeastern University neuroscientist Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett gives a lesson or two from her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Dr. Seth Letterman, the co-founder and CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals. We've been talking about long COVID and the medical condition fibromyalgia. Now, as we said, uh, you're recruiting for two studies, same drug, two different conditions. Um, in both, you're at 30 locations throughout the United States. Uh, let's distinguish them. They they these two studies seem pretty similar. They're very similar. The the main difference is that in you know someone with fibromyalgia had to have had fibromyalgia before covid and someone with long covid can only have this syndrome after having covid. So, you know, by by definition long covid presupposes a prior covid. So, so these are people that were, you know, by and large healthy and not afflicted with these symptoms. And then after COVID wound up, like about 20% of people do who recover from COVID, a 20% wind up with long COVID, and uh, which is a growing problem because these long COVID lasts for months or years, whereas COVID comes and goes if someone survives. But if 20% of people keep continuing to get long COVID after they recover from COVID, that number is just going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And that's, that's why the president um, uh, required 
HHS to provide the National Research Action Plan, because if this continues unabated, it could really decimate the health of of Americans. Uh, it's estimated from a, a Europe, uh, an English study, about 25% of people with long COVID are unable to return to work. So these are these are very important problems. And given how common COVID is and how common long COVID is becoming, uh, we really need to get out in front of this. Now, how long would people be on the study? Uh, they'd be taking this nightly. And I, you said it was sublingual, it's under the tongue, just dissolves. So how long would they be on the study? And I guess some of them would get placebo and some of them would get uh, your drug, right? Yes. Both studies are really similar. They're both intended to enroll about 470 patients each. As you said, half the patients will get placebo, half the patient will get our medicine. And either the placebo or the medicine is given every night at bedtime. And the um, study goes for uh, 14 weeks. There's two weeks where they start at a at a uh, half dose of the medicine, and then 12 weeks, which is the full study period, where they're on the full dose of the medicine. And the primary endpoint is to see how they're doing at the end of the study. And in both cases, the primary endpoint really focuses on the pain. Now, both fibromyalgia and long COVID are much more interesting, much more, you know, multi-symptomatic, but pain is the endpoint that FDA is the most comfortable with. And looking at pain, that's been the basis of the approval of the three approved fibromyalgia drugs. So we think we're on the firmest ground uh, to get a approval in long COVID if we focus on an endpoint that FDA is already comfortable with. And I understand that you have an iPhone app. Yes, that's the way that studies are done now. The, um, you know, the patients are required to come in for periodic assessments, blood work, things like that, to evaluate the safety of the drug, to make sure, you know, that they're healthy through the trial. But the most important information that we're getting in this trial is through a daily um, app where uh, at roughly the same part of the day, uh, patients enter into their phone uh, their experiences for you know the preceding 24 hours. How has their pain been? How has their sleep the night before? And things like that. And you know that's very reliable data, and we get a lot of data. So we um, and and that's the data that FDA is going to be looking at primarily to make a decision about whether to approve the drug or not. Now, how does a person find out about enrolling in either one of these studies? Our website, our company's website, has a banner on the homepage that provides a link and information about how to enroll in the two studies. Our company's website is tonics, T-O-N-I-X, pharma, P-H-A-R-M-A, Dot com. So www.tonicspharma.com, no spaces, T-O-N-I-X-P-H-A-R-M-A. And the banner ad will be at the top of the homepage. And we invite people who are suffering from fibromyalgia or from long COVID to please go to our webpage 
and hit the link and find out if there's a study site recruiting patients near them. As you mentioned, there are about 30 sites across the country actively recruiting for each of these two studies. Now, I just want to end here because we haven't actually spoken about this, but uh, when someone says they're in pain, the person that they may be talking to, they're not in pain. You know, there's no painometer you can put on your your arm saying, oh, this is how much pain a person is in. They go, oh, we can see that. Over time, this long being in pain and perhaps different every day, there's I have a real empathy for people because there's a sense that other people can't sense it. They can't empathize with them. Sometimes they don't even believe it. You're absolutely right. Pain is a subjective experience. So that in the end of the day, only the person experiencing the pain can can report about what it's like. But on the other hand, there are a lot of subjective experiences that humans can agree that we share with each other, even though we're not experiencing the actual sensation of the other person. So I think pain is a universal um experience of of humans and animals i mean pain is well documented in animals and um the for our for our study we we do training so that we help the patients uh understand how to set up a scale and how to answer our scale reliably so that zero means no pain and 10 means the worst pain i've ever experienced in my life an average fibromyalgia patient comes in um, you know, with over a four on that scale, I think, you know, a typical study, they may average about, you know, seven and then, um, you know, come down with the treatment over time. One of the bigger advances in medicine, I think, has been the understanding of pain. And um, obviously, we had the shameful um, opiate crisis in the United States that, you know, related, was related to pain and, and, you know, the over-prescription, over-prescribing of opiates and the promotion of them. That was really disgraceful. But but we, we have learned a lot about pain, the science of pain. And now it's generally recognized that there are three distinct types of pain. They have scientific names that I'll apologize for, but I think I'll give you an example of what each one is. So nociceptive pain is the traditional kind of pain that if you stub your toe, you would experience. Neuropathic pain is when there's a problem with the nerve. For example, in sciatica, where one of your, uh, you know, where one of your spinal bodies is compressing a nerve, you get a very distinctive kind of pain. Or for example, uh, herpes zoster, if there's a viral infection of the nerve, then you get a particular type of pain. And the third type of pain that's been really the latest to be understood is now called plastic pain. And that's the pain of fibromyalgia. So plastic pain is pain. It, the patients experience it as a real pain. It's very real to them, but it originates in the brain. And it uh, originates in the part of the brain that normally processes pain stimuli. And as best as we can tell, it's an alteration in the threshold at which the brain decides something is painful or not. It's almost like a broken thermostat that 
this part of the brain is not working in such a way that experiences that a healthy person would not label as being painful are signaled to that person as being painful. One of the interesting things about nociplastic pain is we keep talking about pain. Pain is the, there are five senses and pain, when we generally refer to it, is the extreme sensation related to the sensation of touch. But fibromyalgia patients actually have extreme sensibility to all five of the senses. So they are bothered by bright lights, loud noises, bad smells, and uh, you know uh, unpleasant tastes. So this part of the brain that regulates what we call painful and when we call it actually is at a level that is closer or higher up than the differentiation between the different five senses. So what we're really trying to do is repair something that's really deep in the brain. And fortunately, it seems like this is more of a software problem than a hardware problem. And what I mean by that is, it's not something like a stroke where something has been destroyed and can't be replaced. We believe in our positive phase three study supports the idea that over time, a treatment can allow the body to adjust and reset this thermostat. Well, Dr. Letterman, this has been terrific. I want to thank you for coming and please know uh, you're welcome uh, on Technation anytime. Thank you very much for having me on again and for such interesting questions. Dr. Seth Letterman is the co-founder and CEO of Tonics Pharmaceuticals. More information is available at tonicspharma.com. That's T-O-N-I-X, tonicspharma.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a Northeastern University neuroscientist and psychologist. Her latest book is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Well, Lisa, welcome to Tech Nation. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, if there's one thing we've all been told about the brain is that we have a reptilian brain or survival brain. We have an emotional brain and a rational brain. And you write, you have one brain. <laughs> You have one brain. Yeah, that's a myth. It's probably the mo one of the most successful scientific um, myths um, I think that scientists have ever created, frankly. And that's because it didn't start off as science. It started off as a morality tale uh, in ancient Greece. And really what, what scientists did in the mid 20th century is they just took some pretty potent ideas about morality from Plato and just kind of tattooed it onto the brain um, and, you know, if you look at a lizard brain with your uh, naked eye and you look at a mammalian, well, there is no mammalian brain, but I mean, you know, you look at a rat brain and you look at a, a primate brain or a human brain, they look kind of different to the naked eye. And so, you know, descriptively with the techniques that were available in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, it was reasonable for scientists to come up with that hypothesis. But I would say as early as the mid-1970s, 
scientists had discovered that the idea of a a, a layered brain, you know, with an inner lizard <laughs> housing your instincts and a limbic system housing your emotions and the cerebral cortex housing your rationality, that I think we've known really for almost 50 years that that's just a myth. It's just a myth. Now, let's get back to something earlier you said, and that's like, okay, well, plenty of creatures got along without brains. At what point in the evolution of creatures, we'll say, or organisms, do you have a brain? Do you say, okay, now that's a brain. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So when does a, when does a clump of cells count as a brain? And of course, you know, scientists often debate, the more important the question is, it seems like the longer the debate goes on, right? But I think the idea is um, that um, there's a, I mean, so even something like the an amphioxus, which is the little creature that I write about in um, in the half lesson, which scientists pretty much agree more or less, there's a little bit of debate, but more or less agree that the amphioxus, the the living amphioxus, which is also called the lancelet, uh, the living amphioxus is a good model for the invertebrate animal that um, was the chordate, the the animal before the split between vertebrates and, and invertebrates. So basically, before the vertebrate um, innovations, all the innovations that came with having a backbone, which include remarkably to me a head, <laughs> um, eyes, uh, you <laughs> know, to have. <laughs> like all of these, all of these senses. So um, sometimes when scientists write about amphioxus, they will refer to the amphioxus as having a brain, but it, it doesn't really have the markings of a brain in the sense, they're using that term sort of metaphorically, I think, um, because the cells, there aren't enough of them. They aren't networked. Um, in a way uh, that they don't have enough um, interneurons, which means neurons between sensory and motor neurons. And actually, what's interesting about it is that one of the aspects of uh, of Darwinian evolution that people don't seem to, or that they have a harder time understanding is that evolution is gradual. And it might be slow, it might be fast, but it's always gradual. You always have these kind of intermediate um, creatures um, from one structure to another. And that's what you see, I think, in an amphioxus. Now, we'll just kind of crawl along with the brain here for a while in the sense that I have always heard in my life that there's a food chain. Like first there's the little guy and then then a bigger guy wants to eat him and then a bigger guy wants to eat him. And there's this whole food chain. And uh, that requires hunting. And you said we didn't start out with hunting. Yeah. So this is amazing to me, actually. Um, but if you go well back before the Cambrian period, you know, 550 million plus years, animals ate each other, but not with intent. <laughs> so again, you know, think about the amphioxus. Tell that, tell that to the eaten. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But amphioxus, you know, you can see um, uh, little videos on YouTube of an amphioxus. So it kind of wriggles in the water, and then it plants itself in the sand like a blade of grass, and it just filters food that goes by. And then when it's um, detecting a decrease in the food, um, it 
basically ejects itself, wriggles to some random spot because it can't see or hear or anything. It just wriggles to some random spot and plants itself again on the likelihood that, you know, anywhere that it's going will have more food than where it's been. And that's kind of how it gets around. And scientists now speculate that the main or, or that an important selection pressure that influenced the development of brain was that creatures somehow figured out how to, or, or evolution somehow provided creatures with the capacity to hunt one another. And that this is probably a vertebrate innovation, um, which may have also been um, uh, developed uh, as a, a kind of convergent evolution in invertebrates as well. But remember, an amphioxus can't see and it can't hear, it doesn't have a head. It, it really, it, it, um, it has no sophisticated senses and it has some senses it doesn't even have at all. So it doesn't have what you would call distance senses. That is the ability to detect something up in the, in the, um, at, a, at a distance and wonder like, is that thing going to eat me or should I eat it? Um, and so it's with distance sense that you get um, predation. And predation hunting is thought to have driven a lot of really important things that our brains can do. Like, for example, when you and I talk to each other, um, we are automatically making inferences about what the other person is thinking and what they're feeling and what they might say next. And scientists call this theory of mind. And um, the uh, hypothesis is that theory of mind, all, all, what allows us to be social creatures, actually had its start in um, hunting. What we still have in common with all of these creatures is that in every moment, our hormones, our organs, our immune system are producing a storm of sense data, and we are barely aware of it. Absolutely. So, um, you know, right now, for example, as people are listening to uh, this podcast, um, they are probably unaware of the fact that each one of them has a whole drama going on inside their own bodies. Um, and frankly, it's really good that we're not aware of that drama, because if we were, we would never pay attention to anything outside our, our own skin ever again. There's a lot going on in there. And if, if, you, if that doesn't seem like common sense to you, just remember the last time that you had a stomach ache or cramps or you know, something inside your body uh, that uh, wasn't feeling very, didn't make you feel very well. You know, when you're, when you have something that you can actually sense inside your body, uh, it's really hard to pay attention to anything outside. It overrides everything else that's going on. Exactly. Oh yeah. And, and <laughs> there are some things that we are not wired to feel at all um, and, and except under the most extreme circumstances. So think about, um, you know, if anyone's ever had um, appendicitis, when you have appendicitis, your appendix is about to burst. At the beginning, you can't feel anything but a dull ache in your whole abdomen. It's like not even localized. And as the appendicitis gets worse and worse, you're still, it's, you know, not, it's right up until the point right before when it bursts, when it will kill you that you feel a very specific pain, a very specific jab, you know, in that uh, location in your body. But most of the time up until that, you're just what you're feeling is kind of like, you know, ache, dull ache, which is getting more and more and more intense. And I don't know if any of your listeners are 
um, women who've been pregnant. But I will tell you <laughs> that um, the first time that I was kicked in the liver or pancreas or whatever the hell it was, that was a sensation that I just had never, ever had. And like ever. <laughs> and it's a singular kick. You see, it's very precise. It's not like someone hits you on the outside and hit a bunch of organs. No, but and it's right it the, is. And also right at there. first, you know, you have experiential blindness for it because you're like, what was that? What was that? <laughs> um, but, you know, because it's just we're not we're not really all that in tune with the insides of our bodies. And and that's a really good thing, actually, because um, it, it would draw all our attention. And in fact, in some illnesses, for example, um, uh, you know, one way to think about um, depression, for example, um, is uh, that people's brain, you know, that the, a person's brain is kind of, to some extent, hijacked by its body. The person's body is just has a clamp down on the brain and the brain can't really attend to what's going on in the world too much because there's too much discomfort you know, inside the body. Also, chronic pain is is a very, very similar. Well, chronic pain is really a problem in your brain, but um, uh, but it's your brain believing there's something wrong with your body and modeling sensations um, that it believes that are going on in your body, and it just can't dislodge itself from that. Well, we won't talk about each of the seven lessons, but here's one I really liked: little brains wire themselves to their world. Yeah, so an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world and from and from the infant's own body. And what this means is that the brain is born unfinished in a in a fairly substantial way. You know, so a lot of creatures when they're born they're born and then, you know, like think of a little, a little horse, you know, it's born and then the cold is like up and around and, you know, within like the hour. Infants, you know, what does it take? Like nine months for an infant to learn to walk? I mean, they can't even burp by themselves when they're born. And they're really, really helpless little creatures. And that's because their brains are so unfinished. And so there's a lot of input visual input, auditory input, you know, all kinds of sense data from the world and from the infant's own body that are necessary for finishing that brain. But I think the really remarkable thing is that there's also social input that's required to finish a brain. So things like making eye contact with a baby, speaking to a baby, holding a baby, feeding a baby. Um, these are all things that actually are what scientists call expectable input, meaning the baby's brain is expecting regularities from the world to finish wiring. And if it doesn't get those regularities, um, then very, very bad things happen. Well, it's one thing if a baby is born full term in our vernacular, if you will. But what, what happens if a baby is born, say, two months early and is in the neonatal intensive care unit? Well, I would say a couple of things are important to know. First of all, neonatal care is made huge advances uh, in the last couple of decades in providing premature infants with what they need to develop properly. So for example, um, in some um, units, they will provide the infant with sounds of the mother's voice muffled as if they 
were still in utero, for example. And that actually has an effect on the development of the auditory cortex in that infant. But more generally, what I would say is all of an infant's neurons are born, essentially, are birthed off the neural tube in, during when the, when when that before the infant is an infant and when it's just an embryo, right? So all neurons are born in an embryo and then they migrate to where the position where they need to be and then they grow and they, 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 their axons grow, their dendrites grow, like all the little, you know, the little connections grow. Um, and so an infant that's born prematurely, like say in the last trimester still has, but it's still got all its parts it just needs a little more time to grow. And so, um, and, you know, some of the input that it needs um, uh, will have to come from outside in the world instead of, you know, inside in the uterus. This, of course, begs a really touchy question, which I didn't describe in the book, which is, is a, is a fetus before it's born learning? Like, is the fetus receiving um, sense data and is it learning? And I think that there's really no question that at least in the last, in the third trimester, there's no question that the answer is yes. That, 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 that fetus is taking in some sense data from its surroundings. Um, how much sense data is not clear and just how important it is, is not clear, but newborn infants are born, for example, recognizing the, they cry with an accent that is similar to the um, verbal um, language and sounds of the, of the, of its caregiver, of its, of it, of the, um, the woman who, who birthed it. So clearly it's learning something. Well, Lisa, this has been terrific. Um, I hope you come back and see us again. I still have a whole bunch of questions for you. I would love to. That would be wonderful. This was fun. Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is published by Mariner. It's now out in paperback. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.